Welcome to the 43rd episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today's guest is Norman Crowley. Norman was always interested in tech and engineering. At the age of 13, his father taught him how to weld. He got his start doing local welding jobs for farmers. At the age of 16, he had 6 to 8 people working for him. He sold his business for $200,000. He then started a tech company that he grew and then sold for $14 million. He then started his server-based gaming business. He almost sold this for $1 billion, but the financial crash happened. He sold it for $500 million a few years later. Not bad for someone without a college degree. Today, he is the CEO and founder of Crowley Carbon. Crowley Carbon operates in over 40 countries. Listen to follow Norman's journey and learn how he moved up to get to where he is today. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash no degree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show is impossible without you. Let's get this show started. Hey, Norman, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Norman Crowley. I'm the chief executive of Cool Planet Group. So what is Cool Planet Group? And what do you do for Cool Planet Group? Well, I started it and I guess I'm the ultimate boss. And what we do is we own a bunch of companies that are what we call planet positive. So they they work together to tackle the biggest challenges facing the planet right now. So I guess the three challenges, main three challenges are energy, transport and food. And so we work in those. We've got a big energy efficiency, green energy business. Um, we've got a really cool transport company. And then we're developing a food company. Wow. So what would your day to day look like or your week to week look like? You can even answer that. <laughs> Um, well, with COVID, it all kind of looks like the home office. <laughs> but um, what it looks like is working with the teams in the various businesses. And nowadays, before, it was me doing the actual work. So me doing the selling, me writing the software. Um, where Now what it looks like is there's an executive team. And I work with that executive team to make sure that they're getting where they need to get to. So as I guess as you get older and the businesses get bigger, your role becomes more enabling um, them to do the work rather than doing the work yourself. Now you're more on a high level, making sure others can sort of do are in the best position to do what they do. Would you start off as in this role? Whenever you do a startup, so Cool Planet is my fourth startup. So whenever you do a startup, in the beginning, you do everything, right? You empty the bins, you write the software, you do the selling, you do the marketing, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas as time goes on, other people start to do some of that. And then you start to get into management and then ultimately into managing the managers. And now, I guess when the business gets reasonably big your role is much more as a mentor to them it's on the creative side are we doing everything that we can do creatively on a dream big side are we dreaming big enough are we dreaming too big and then are they are the executive team managing their teams the way their teams need to be managed wow no i mean thank you for that insight so now let's sort of take it back to sort of high school would you want to be in high school well, where I grew up, so you might hear from my accent that I'm Irish. And so I grew up in the 1970s in Ireland, and we were pretty poor. We had a farm, my dad had a farm, and, and we worked from a very young age on the farm. But there was a kind of contradiction. Our days were about hard work and 
trying to make a few bucks. And then we would watch TV and we would watch US TV shows like Dallas and things like that. And everyone on the TV was rich and they worked in business. So I guess I joined the dots pretty early and figured that these people are rich, richer than me and they're in business. So therefore, I'd like to be in business. And at the time as well, you know, technology was very much a thing um, or becoming a thing. And you had even stories like Apple computers and Microsoft. I always liked tech more and engineering more. So even at a very early age, that's what I love doing. And then when I was about 13, my dad taught me how to weld. So on a farm, when things break, you can't really get somebody to fix them. So you got to fix them yourself. He taught me how to weld. And to me, welding and creating things out of metal was like alchemy because you could take metal and you could make it into something that you could sell to make money. By the time I was 13, I was doing welding jobs for local farmers and making money that way. You mentioned that when you looked at the TV, you sort of learned, you're like, I want to be in business. Like, what was business to you, right? Because I know we all have... <laughs> different ideas of what things are when we're teen, you know early teens yeah well business then was like something that allowed you to go to the office whatever that meant with a briefcase and end up driving fancy cars and live in a glamorous house so that was what business and then even back then, 80s, 70s, 80s, they were inspirational business leaders like Richard Branson, um, who's since become a, a good friend. You know, he he was around then and he was kind of swashbuckling and taking risks. So you got to see, even back then, you got to see what inspiration looked like. One of the problems with inspiration back then is you had a lot of people writing business books, um, you know, how to win friends and influence people and, and books. But business books back then um, in the 80s and 90s and indeed 2000s were, you know, if you look at business books like Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, they weren't great business books because they were like, I'm fantastic and everything I do works perfectly and that's it. Where proper business books are, look, this stuff is really tough and this is where it generally goes wrong, right? And this is what you need to remember. And it's only really with books like The Hard Thing About Hard Things from Ben Horowitz and people like that, that that new genre of book has started where you can learn that not everything is fine uh, because not everything is fine. So now you started making money at 13. How much money was it? Ah, Look, relative to now, um, it wasn't a whole lot. But you know, we would do a job, a welding job, and we would get like £3,000, you know, which is was about 4000 bucks. And for a kid, that's a lot of money. Yeah. How long would a job like that take? I would take a couple of weeks, but you knew that you were going to get £3,000 at the end of it. Like, And so by the time, one of the problems with starting off in business early is you end up with more money than your friends, but you have less time than your friends. So your friends have a lot of time and you have money. So there's a slight contradiction in that, but it kind of stops you from doing schoolwork too, because you you make money and you're kind of going, what do I need to do schoolwork for? I can just make money. And some people think that's 100% positive. I don't think it is. I think it's better to go to school if you can and finish up. Although, and go to college, ideally. But at the same time, I think college now, 
isn't what it used to be. A lot of it is, especially in the US, you know, you have to spend a lot of money to go to college. Are degrees really that good? Are degrees that important? And Elon Musk would be a hero of mine. And whatever notion I took this weekend, I was curious as to see, did he actually have an engineering degree? <laughs> because obviously the stuff he does across SpaceX and Tesla and Neuralink and everything are so engineeringly crazy. And his engineering knowledge is incredible. And it turns out, from what I could find, he doesn't have an engineering degree. <laughs> right? Yeah, he has something in... I think it's physics. But I'm not even sure if he's got a degree, actually. No, I think he does. I think he does. At some point, what you need just a base level of knowledge and just to pursue your passions. So how was school for you? Like, did you enjoy school or you just ended up, it was like, hey, look, I'm making the money. I got to, you know, sort of save up. It was okay. And I was okay at school. I wasn't very studious, but I, I could figure out the basic themes. And even like a lot of the information I use now in business is stuff I learned in high school, right? <laughs> and I even see it with my kids that like they're 19 and 21 now, but a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff they use is stuff they learned in high school. That's incredibly useful. But I couldn't wait to finish up at the same time. And so I did my last exams, which in Ireland are called your Leaving Cert, which is probably the equivalent of SATs when I was 16. But by the time I was 16, I had like seven or eight people working for me. So I just literally walked out of school the last day and pretty much never saw anybody from school ever again, actually. So the business sort of grew. Did you sort of teach other people to weld? Can you tell us about this welding empire that you had in high school? <laughs> well, the empire ended with about 15 people when I was 20. And some people I taught how to weld, but most people I heard were, um, especially as it went on, were qualified welders. And the business just got bigger. More and more farmers wanted work done and then a local builder used us to build quite a lot of stuff. And it just grew and it wasn't that big, you know, like 15 people isn't really that many. Then when I was 20, the builder that I was doing a lot of the work for, he was just getting bigger and bigger as well. And so he bought the business off me when I was 20 for not a lot of money, kind of 200,000 bucks, that kind of way. But when you're, when you're 20, and this is 1990, so it's kind of like 200 grand is a lot of money. No, definitely a lot of money. So what'd you learn about business from what are the main things you learned from running that business mainly about hard work i didn't really learn that much about managing teams because i grew the team quite slowly they were just good guys you know um maybe one or two weren't but most of them were just good guys and we built it over time so i didn't really learn much and then the customer relationship was directly with me between me and the customer so when a business is small like that you learn how to sell i guess and you learn how to make sure you get paid which are two critical lessons that you take for granted as time goes on but you didn't learn much about managing people which when you're growing a company to be substantial actually it's all about managing people and motivating people but i learned the basics i guess do work, get paid. Yeah. <laughs> what's a mistake you made or what's something you would have done differently now that you look back? Like if you were to run again? Um, if I was running that again, that one, it would be hire managers and get them to manage more people. Because even then I was doing most of the work, you know, and so I was working and then managing the other people as well. And 
Whereas actually the key to making a lot of money is to hire people and get them to do the work and then get them to manage other people and then they do the work. And if you can keep doing that, then you're going to do quite well. It seems like your father was definitely a big influence on you. Can you sort of describe him and what was like one of the best or most important lessons that you learned from him? Well, the most important lesson and yet a negative lesson in the end, a good lesson for business is he just worked his ass off. So it was seven days a week, every hour that was bright was work and even the ones that weren't. And he died a couple of years ago, um, two months off his 90th birthday, and he was working eight weeks up until when he died. (laughs) So... Yeah. So for him, it was all about the work. And he taught us that, which is the most important lesson, but actually also something to watch, right? Because now at 50 years old, I'm working seven days a week and it's that's not entirely healthy. It's a great lesson, but it's not an entirely brilliant lesson. If you want to make a lot of money and be successful in business, then you have to work those hours. And that's how you learn the lessons. But at the same time, when you work those hours, you miss out on what's a normal life, really. I've got a great family, thankfully. But actually, even they would know me as the guy who just works. Now, it makes sense. So you sold this business for 200000 What came next? I always wanted to get into tech. Even when we had the welding business, we were always doing kind of high-tech stuff. We were building doors that were automatic and this kind of thing. I wanted to do more in tech. Um, I knew at that point, I knew a bit about tech. I had computers and all that. So we set up a new business called Trinity Commerce. And Trinity Commerce was a tech company. So we sold people computers in businesses and sold people software for those computers. And then around 1997, at that point, the business was probably about 80 people, the tech business, and it was operating in in probably four or five countries in the US as well as Europe. And we discovered the internet. So at the time, the internet was this weird thing that worked very slow and made funny noises when you tried to connect to it. But we became obsessed with it, just this idea that you could connect to other people all around the world and you could access information. And so we built um, websites. What Our obsession was business-to-business stuff. So we built things that would allow lawyers to access the company's registration office and the land registry and things like that. And we created what wasn't even called e-commerce when we started, but was became known as e-commerce. And by 1999, that was 170 people around the world. And we were very lucky that two telecoms companies were both looking to float at the time. And they both wanted to buy an e-commerce company because we were kind of e-commerce companies were cool. We sold the business in 1999 for about 14 million quid. And you sold it at a good time because that was before the dot-com bubble burst. Okay. So you sold this business and then what what is going through your mind? Because now it's much higher than the 200,000 and you're pretty set. Like what went through your mind and how did it feel? Because I, I assumed you accomplished some goals that you had set out and now you're trying to think of new goals. Yeah. you. Know, the main thing I learned is that, and it sounds funny when you say it, but that money is not everything, right? And people always say that's easy for people who've sold a business for 14 million bucks to say, because I was telling people all during my twenties that I was going to retire by the time I was 30. And then I did, but what I didn't say was, what am I going to do after I retire? (laughs) It turns out that the first thing you do is you buy some cars and you buy some houses and then, and then you just 
realized that it's not really that much fun. And so then I just went back to work. Yeah. <laughs> so how long were you retired for? Would you yeah, say four weeks? Four weeks. And then yeah. what was your thought process in the beginning? Like, hey, I'm just gonna drive these fast cars. Yeah. For the rest of my life. Yeah. I bought myself a car, my wife a car. Then my wife was working and she didn't want to stop working. So I couldn't play with her. <laughs> and then all my friends were working. And so I couldn't play with them. And then I realized that really all the time, it wasn't about the money. It was about the work. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, well, it's easy for you to say that, don't make that mistake, right? It isn't easy for me to say that. It is actually about the work. Life is about getting shit done. It's not about making money. Making money is a side effect of getting shit done. So now what's running through your mind at the end and what are you sort of looking for your next move? What was going through my mind was looking for, I guess, my next move. It doesn't take long when you've kind of got an entrepreneurial mind. What happened was a friend of mine worked for um, William Hill. William Hill is is a betting bookmaker. Um, it's a very big bookmaker in the UK. A friend of mine worked for them, and I had arranged to meet him for a beer in London. We arranged to meet in a betting shop, and I had never been to a betting shop. And we went into the betting shop, and people were placing bets. It's legal to do that in most of Europe. Um, it's not, obviously, in the US. And William Hill is a huge bookmaker, um, 3,000 stores. And as I was waiting for him, I was fascinated with this old looking slot machine thing that looked like it was from the 70s. And um, when he came out, I kind of said, what's the story with this funny looking machine? And he said, well, most of the profits of the store come from that machine. And I was like, what? This thing looks like an antique, you know? And he said, I said, why don't you upgrade it? Like get in broadband, have a digital machine. And he was like, people don't like to play digital machines. I said, when you go to Vegas, they've got screens on the machines and all of that. And he said, if you think you're so smart, why don't you build a digital machine? So at the time, a slot machine would take about 150 pounds a week. So we built a machine. We didn't know anything about gaming. <laughs> so we built a machine. First machine took like 50 bucks, right? Uh, it was a mess and it used to break all the time. And then after about six months, we built a second machine. And the second machine took 600 bucks a week. Within five years, we'd grown that business from eight people to two and a half thousand people and from zero revenue to about 300 million a year in revenue. And what we accidentally invented was a technology called server-based gaming, where the intelligence isn't in the machine, the intelligence is in the cloud. And it wasn't called the cloud at the time. It became our first kind of seriously grown-up business. We floated it on the stock market in 2006. Now, as you're growing the company, how did it feel? Because obviously you were successful before, right? But now this is a totally different level, right? Now that you're you're growing the revenues and now whatever, 30 times bigger in terms of employees, what was going through your mind? What was going through our mind was fear. <laughs> uh, there's a thing. Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? Yeah. No, I know yeah. of it. Yeah. So you're definitely living in imposter syndrome, basically. Everyone else is saying, oh, my God, you're so successful. But actually, you, as you're living it, just think that you're lucky and that it's not as big as everyone thinks it is and all of that, you know. So and generally fear, too, because growing a business that fast is a bit of a high wire act, right? You're always short of money because you're always growing faster than you should. And you're hiring teams faster than 
you normally should. And therefore, the teams are some of the teams are amazing, and some of the teams aren't as good. And so the teams that aren't as good are creating a bit of a mess. And so the whole thing, it's like juggling 50 plates, two chainsaws, while you're standing on an exercise ball, and the exercise ball is on fire. How would you advise someone to go through that? Or what would have helped you go through that a little more easily? You can advise people of a lot of things, but they're kind of trite. It's You just got to go through it and you got to think fast on your feet. And that's part of the process of growing a business is just thinking fast um, and moving quickly and putting up with the complete chaos that happens. The only way to avoid the chaos is to go slower. And entrepreneurs don't really want to go slower. To quote Mark Zuckerberg, we want to move fast and break things. What skills do you feel really helped you sort of navigate that? Well, the early skills about being able to sell, um, being passionate about the business helps a lot. It covers up a lot of the cracks. Um, Things that we weren't that good at, managing people, um, like we were putting up with a lot of crap, whereas we should have just pushed people harder um, to be better people. I think the thing you learn over time is, is structure, which is kind of boring, but you learn how to structure things properly and have a structure around everything, have a structure around sales, have a structure around finance, marketing, you know, development, all the different things. And in the beginning, I was not a structure guy. I was a go out and sell more deals kind of guy. But over time, you become a structure guy. So how has that, how has the gaming industry really changed over time? Like everything else, it's become digital. And we were one of the big instigators of it becoming digital. And now it's it's obviously a much bigger business and a much more digital business than it was back then. So we floated it. We did all that roadshow, flying around in a private jet uh, experience that everybody dreams about in business, you know. And it's one of those things, when you start off in business, you always hear about, oh, he floated his company and made a fortune. And, you know, they did a roadshow and they got to fly in a private jet to meet all these banks. And you always want to do that, right? But like so many other things in life, when you do that, it's actually quite horrible because you're trying to raise all this money in a short space of time and the market is volatile and changing. And yes, you're flying around in a private jet, but you're not sleeping. And so so on one hand, it's glamorous, but on the other hand, it's just same shit, different day. Did the imposter syndrome ever sort of become easier? Did it ever go away? Not during that business, no. Um, After we sold that business, I kind of had a bit of a mini breakdown, or just before we sold it, actually. The famous thing that happened is in 2007, a Icelandic hedge fund offered to buy the business for a billion dollars. We agreed to sell it. That process took about seven or eight months. And then all the time that was happening, the world was starting to go to hell like Lehman Brothers had happened, all of that kind of stuff. And so we were trying to sell the business while the world was on a very shaky foundation. But we were trying to sell it before the world really went to hell. And famously, we were two hours away from selling it for a billion bucks. And basically, the Icelandic fund went bust. So had we been a week earlier, we would have walked off with a billion bucks. So then 2008 started very tough um, global meltdown, like global financial crisis is in full flight at that point. And our business is in the toilet, share prices in the toilet. And we rebuilt the business over seven or eight months. We won a whole lot of new deals uh, around the world. And then I woke up one day and I couldn't feel my hand, actually. 
And you know the way sometimes that happens, but you slept funny. Um, but actually, by lunchtime, I still couldn't feel my hand. Um, they thought it was something very serious. They thought it was the doctors. They thought it was something like ALS, you know, which is a very serious neurological disease um, or something like that. So for a couple of weeks, I wandered around believing I was going to die. Actually, it was just pure stress. And I wasn't living the healthiest lifestyle at the time. And um, I learned another very valuable lesson in life, which is how to look after yourself. So, <laughs> yeah, at the time I was about 280 pounds. I would get up on a Monday morning in Dublin. I would fly to London where the office was. Then every third week I would fly to Hong Kong, jump on a private jet, do eight countries around Hong Kong, fly home. And then every 12th week I would fly on to Australia. And I wasn't exercising and I was just eating rubbish and um, and I wasn't looking after my mental health. And basically the body in the end just said, we're pulling the plug, baby. <laughs> no, I mean, were you still working when you didn't feel yeah. your hand or? Oh, yeah. No, I was working 18 hour days, seven days a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So now obviously you have a mind shift where you're like, all right. You know, I got to take it back. So what'd you do? What'd you start doing? Did you start exercising, eating different? Yeah. Yeah. Like it happened gradually. I met some people who knew about everything from meditation to exercise to eating properly. You're not 280 anymore. Definitely. No, no. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of slightly freakish now. I meditate for half an hour every single day. Um, Keto diet fan running morning and evening, you know. I'm an entirely different person, basically. And that's an important lesson because then you start to realize what's important. You know, there's quite a big cohort in the world of meditating successful business people like Naval Ravikant, Chamath Paliapatiya, the list goes on. For business, meditation, exercise, food are critical. You know, like if you don't, if you're trying to be successful in business and you're not eating properly, exercising properly, meditating, then you're just missing some of the key tools that it takes to succeed. When did the gaming group come to an end? Once I figured out what was wrong and how to fix it in terms of, so it turned out that what was wrong was stress, right? And so once I figured out how to get a handle on that, I decided that I just hated the gaming industry, that I'd seen enough of it. So we decided to sell the company in 2008, late 2008, and we sold it to private equity for half a billion bucks. Yeah, so the numbers are getting bigger all the time. (laughs) And then I guess maybe through it meditation, but I knew that I wanted to do another business. But I said, if I was going to do another business, that it would have to make money, but also it would have to be good for the world. What we did was we looked around and we looked at what the biggest problem in the world was. And certainly top three problem in the world is climate change. And so we started to research climate change. And then we set up this business in 2009. And this business we've grown over the last 10 years to be quite a substantial business. We operate in 23 countries around the world. We've got probably 40 different subsidiaries doing everything from energy to cars to to education. What was your goal with this company? So obviously you wanted to sort of be good for the world. So how did you get that one started? We looked around at climate change and we saw what are the biggest problems in climate change. And they are that the energy we consume is damaging the world. Um, so the energy we consume comes from hydrocarbons, so coal, petrol, um, gas, as you call it in the US. And we were like, how do we get rid of this? And the answer is solar, wind, 
and you stop wasting it. So the one that shocked us most is that every year, factories waste $3 trillion in energy. So you take this precious asset out of, out of the ground, gas, and then you waste $3 trillion of it. And we were like, this makes no sense. Why don't we just go to factories and explain to them how they can stop wasting that energy? So what we've set up is probably the biggest player in industrial energy efficiency. So like our with our biggest customer annually, we save them about $100 million a year in energy. And how we got started was we just went to them and we asked them why they were wasting it. And then they told us. <laughs> and then we hired experts, basically, and we built up a team. And now we have teams in every part of industrial energy consumption. And then what you do in any business when you're starting it off is you just solve the problem that the customer has. And that ends up being many problems. So they're wasting money with their boilers. So how do we make our boilers more efficient? They're wasting money with their chillers. They need software to be able to monitor these things. Um, they don't have capital to be able to deploy. So we set up our own bank called Cool Planet Capital. They worry about us not saving them this money. So we set up an insurance company. So you just build up these solutions one after the other over time and you make mistakes. Um, and eventually you end up with a business that looks like a grown up business. Was there ever a time the lack of a college degree held you back? Not technically. Um, it probably hurts your confidence a little bit because you start to assume that if you don't have a degree, then you're stupider than somebody with a degree. And then I guess over time, you realize that that's just not true. When was the point that you realized, like, this is definitely not true? I'm just as smart as these other people who have more credential, you know, credentials on paper than you. I think it, I don't remember a point. I think it just happened gradually. You know, when you've sold a business for half a billion bucks, any belief you have that you're not that smart, uh, it goes out the window. But also, look, you have to realize every day that you're not that smart about lots of things. And so, you know, being cocky about what you know is never a good idea. <laughs> um, a bit of humility is required just every hour of every day. But I guess as stuff starts to work out for you and you get more customers and make more money, you start to believe that it's not all about a qualification. And the other thing is when you meet people with a lot of qualifications who aren't that clever, then you start to also piece together that. Now, going back, you know, now you look back at your whole career and what would you say like, hey, these are the things like I did right. You know, in addition to working hard, you know, what do you feel like is your are the set of skills that really set you apart? Rather than doing that, let's say, what are the skills you need, right? And there are many, many skills, right? Um, like a business can go bust because you don't understand cash flow or a business can go bust because you don't sell that well or like they can go bust for hundreds of hundreds of reasons. And luck, you know, like at the moment during COVID, if you own 50 hotels, you can go bust just because COVID, right? But if you have to distill it down, and it's very hard to distill it down, and I distill it down to three things that you you need to do, right? When I was about 21, I learned how to walk on hot coals. My brother was obsessed with it, and he took me to a training course. And in, in teaching you to walk on hot coals, they teach you three lessons. And I became a teacher of walking hot, on hot coals afterwards. I became slightly obsessed. 
And they teach you three things. And there's three things that you need more than anything else to succeed in business. When they teach you to walk on hot coals, what they do is they take about 30 ton of timber and they put it in a big pile and they light it. And then when it's burnt into embers, they rake out the embers and then into a bed that's about 30 feet long. Then they teach you how to walk on that. And it's pretty hot, right? People say, oh, it's not that hot. But actually, one of the things they do is they take a piece of bacon and they throw it onto it. And the minute they throw it onto it, it just incinerates, right? And so you know it's hot. So the first thing when you're going to walk on hot coals is fill your mind with happy thoughts. Now, the reason that's important is if you stand there in the front of the bed of hot coals and you say, I'm going to burn and this is going to hurt, then you will burn and it will hurt. And I've seen people being burnt and hurt over the years. But how do you fill your mind with happy thoughts when you're about to walk on hot coals? And that's the same as when you're running a business and you get up in the morning and you haven't sold a deal in a month, COVID is raging and people that you're supposed to be managing are tired and pissed off. That's very similar to facing down a bed of hot coals. And so You need tactics for how you fill your mind with happy thoughts. And the answer is, in business, you read books about successful business people. You listen to podcasts about podcasts like this, right? You don't um, watch the news 24-7, okay? And in our house, the news is banned. And in our business, the news is banned. You don't listen to talk radio where they're telling you how shit the world is, right? You wake up in the morning and you choose to tune in to things that are positive and uplifting, right? And you choose to hang around with people who are positive and uplifting. And you try and spend as little time as possible with people who aren't, even if they're your friends or your former friends or your mom, in my case. So step one, fill your mind with happy thoughts. Step two, it's really important when you're walking on hot coals not to go halfway across, turn around and come back or to wait, right? Because you will burn. And everyone talks about it's really important to have goals and it is really important to have goals. But as important as goals are having the courage to communicate those goals. And that's the thing that nobody talks about. Tony Robbins never talks about it. It's that thing about if I say to you, I'm going to create the biggest energy efficiency company in the world then statistically, you will laugh. Somebody will laugh at me because I don't have the biggest energy efficiency company in the world. Because people laugh at us when we say these things, Elon Musk is a great example. I'm going to create the most successful car company in the world. But Elon, you don't know anything about cars. And then they laugh at him. And actually, the world spent the last 10 years laughing at Elon, right? Right up until the point the business was worth 400 billion bucks, right? But he had the courage to communicate his goals. And what happens is when you have the courage to communicate your goals, about 20% of the people you're communicating to them to will help you. And the other 80% will laugh at you. Okay. But you have to have the courage to communicate the goal. And that's the mistake people make. It's not about writing it down. It's about writing it down and then telling everybody that this is what you're going to do and looking like an idiot in the process. But In the process of looking like an idiot, 20% of people will help you, and the 20% is gold. So have the courage to communicate the goal. The final thing when you're walking on hot coals is keep fucking walking. (laughs) Because if you give up, you're going to burn, and you're not going to get to the end, and not going to be able to tell people that you walked on hot coals. 
And in business, it's about work. You only lose when you stop. And that's a cliche, but it's so true. And it is horrible most of the time. And people go, hey, Norm, you sold your business for half a billion bucks. It's easy for you. It's not fucking easy for me, right? Because every day of the week, we have some businesses within our group that are failing because of COVID or because of a mess we made. Other businesses are massively successful. That's great. But it's not easy. It's not easy because you have money. It's not easy because, 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 right? It's just when you have money, certain things are a little bit easier, but most things are as difficult as they always were. So it doesn't get easier, but you learn how to handle it better, but only if you keep walking. So they're the three things. Now let's kind of go into like hypotheticals. If you're like a youngster again, 15 to 18, what would you sort of do? Well, it's slightly tricky because if you're 15, 18, you don't know what I know now. But in terms of industry, what industries really excite you? Look, nowadays, everything is to do with tech. And that doesn't mean that you have to understand tech. You don't have to be a coder or a programmer or whatever to understand it. But the reason tech is the exciting space in all of its facets is because it's about the way you become more successful faster is leverage, right? So how do you get leverage? Well, you get leverage by getting other people to work with you because then there's more of you having an impact. And the other thing is tech is the ultimate leverage because one person can write an app that can impact millions of people. And so it has to be in technology for us and all the areas that we're excited about are in technology. And I'll come back to what we're excited about. But the other one is all about how much leverage you can get. And so the areas we're excited about we don't start a business now unless that business can impact a billion people. So it's not about setting up a mom and pop business. Like somebody said to me recently, trombone oil, right? So there are trombones, it's a musical instrument, and trombones need oil to lubricate them. So if you're the biggest player in trombone oil in the world, it's not that really that interesting, right? <laughs> like you're not making that much money because there just aren't enough trombones that need oil. So we work in areas like energy because over the next 10 years, we're going to transition from depending on oil and gas to depending on renewables. And that's just a monster, monster opportunity. Car, next one for us is transport. So cars are going to go from petrol, gas, cars that we drive to automated electric cars. And again, that's just a monster space. And then the space that less people are looking at, but we're obsessed with, is food. So food is going to go from, if you think about a steak, right? So in order to create a steak, we have to put in 98% of the energy, and then the 2% that's left is the steak. And that's just a stupid waste of energy. So now there's technologies like precision fermentation, cellular manufacturing, that can recreate a steak. And in the next 10 years, that's going to be the cutting edge technology. So we're not going to be damaging the planet with, with steers and cows anymore. We're going to have these precision fermentation vessels that can create meat, can create protein of any description. So that's the other area that we're completely excited about. Obviously, you've accomplished a lot of goals throughout your life. How do your goals look like now? Save the world, baby. Yeah, okay. <laughs> do people still laugh at that or are they, do they some take your little... do. Some people do, but we don't give a shit about them. They're, that's the, like Gandhi, you know, Gandhi, yeah. very famous leader in India. Yeah, so yeah. Gan Gandhi came up with a famous phrase that other people have been credited with, but I think he, um, I think he's the one who said it. And it's, it's a phrase we never forget. It's about change, right? So when people laugh at you, it's because they're nervous about change. 
And what Gandhi said was, first they mock you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And if you think about, say, Tesla, or you think about some of the stuff that's happened in our business, like if you take, again, Tesla, first they mock you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you uh, with billions in shorts selling, and then you win. But you only win if you keep fucking walking. Thank you for all this valuable advice. So how would someone sort of get in contact with you? If you Google me, there's only one Norman Crowley in the world, weirdly. So if you Google me, you'll see, and I'm on LinkedIn and the usual haunts. You know, going back to your father, do you ever see yourself like you're 90? Are you still working or what do you, you know, you're still working? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I have four brothers and it's all about the work. <laughs> and our team here in the business, it's all about work, right? Um, and now it's about mission, right? It's about, it's about, as we say, cooling the planet, right? But it's still work. And like my wife works in the business. She works seven days a week. You know, it's like that's the mission. But like we get a lot of joy out of that, right? Because stuff gets done and the mission gets achieved and lives get saved and and we get to make money. So it's all good. So no, I'm going to look forward. I'm not laughing at you. I'm gonna, I'm already oh, with you. you. I'm already with yeah. you. So I look forward to your mission of saving the world. I want to thank you for the time. I know the listeners have gotten a lot of value out of this, Norman. And so thank you. Thank you, too. Thanks for the time. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. Yeah, so... You got no degree? No problem. No problem. Not at all. Any problem? We can solve it. We them. got this. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. Growing in the knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree? No problem. Any problem? We can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in a knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree? No problem. Any problem? We can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going.